Good morning. Good morning. And we're moving right. Oh, we have technical difficulties here. It looks like. How's it? Is it on? It is on. No, it's, it's the right HDMI. It was working earlier. Yeah. Try that. Did Trent do anything? Just early? Let me, let me, I'll take it away. in the system. chapter we were in was King Nebuchadnezzar was the king. When we jump into this one, uh, we learned that there's a new king in town. His name is Belshazzar. And things, it's about 21, 22 years since, uh, since Nebuchadnezzar's death now. And uh, things haven't gotten any better in the kingdom. In fact, they've gone downhill. Uh, <clears throat> after Nebuchadnezzar left office after he died, his son, Evil Merodash, became, uh, became the king, and uh, just as a successor. He reigned for two years, and then, uh, I forget the fellow's name, it's one you can't pronounce, or I can't, uh, but he usurped the throne. He had, uh, he had uh, Evil Merodash killed, and he took the throne and ruled for about two years and then died and left it to his son, who also was an illegitimate. Oh, look at that. Mike did it again. And uh, was also a, uh, not, not of the line of, well, he wasn't, he wasn't of the line of Nebuchadnezzar. Many believed that evil Merodash was a son-in-law to the king. But the kingship did not go to the, to the, uh, descendant on the female side, it always went down the male side of the family. So the kingdom should have stayed in, in uh, Nebuchadnezzar's name to Evil Merodash and then to his son, Nabonidus. But there was a coup, and uh, there we can go. Now we can start moving along. Well, maybe. There we go. Uh, we can move along. 
But uh, so Babylon was uh, the power power kingdom in that country. Uh, and it was, uh, you saw this picture last week. It was a huge city. It had two walls all the way around. Uh, one of the, by one account, the walls were 300 feet high, 80 feet wide. The inner wall was a little smaller, but no less, it was a strong wall. They also had a 35-foot deep foundation all the way around. So to tunnel underneath it would have been a challenge as well. It was, the Babylonians considered it uh, impenetrable, that they were, once, when they were inside those walls, they were safe. Uh, one historian claims they had 20 years of supplies in the kingdom. That might be a stretch, but they did have a lot of supplies. So they, they could withstand a siege for some time. Uh, there, there's a, The history on this gets a little bit confused because there's, there's the Babylonian account of the fall and then there's the Persian account of the fall, and they conflict with each other. Then there's two other historians that have written on it. One of them's name was Herodotus, Herodotus or something like that, and uh, he was about 400 B.C. So he was about 100 years, maybe 200 years after the fall of Babylon that he wrote his records, but he did it based on research and his trip to Babylon. Uh, then another hundred years later, there was a man named Xenophon who also wrote a history of, uh, of the uh, Babylonian, of the fall of Babylon, and, and quite a few other things too, but in, included in that. The historians mostly consider Herodotus and Xenophon to be fiction, to be more, more Greek folklore than, than fact. But the interesting thing is, is those two accounts validate Daniel's account. So Daniel gets uh, accused of many different things in this book. One of them getting the, getting the siege wrong. One of them is the wrong king because there was no King Belshazzar is what they said. And then the other was that he was killed at that. Well, Herodotus and Xenophon say the same thing. Uh, whether how they got that was just by their research. They were historians. I don't, has anybody ever heard of Xenophon? No. You have. Uh, based on this history? Because he also wrote a book that horsemen's, horse people like. Have you heard of that one? I have not. It, uh, it's a book on horsemanship. Xenophon was a, uh, he was a soldier. First, his first uh, career was as a soldier and as a horseman. And he wrote a book called On Horsemanship. And today, many people refer to that book. It's uh, because he was one of the, he was kind of a uh, what do you say ahead of his time. He believed in gentling horses, not breaking them. He said you had a safer, more secure mount. And for what he was doing, going into battle with a horse, he wanted his horse to trust him, not fear him. So he, he was pretty famous for that book. If you if you uh, talk to the natural horsemanship people, that most of them will have heard of Xenophon. And I, I was, when I read that, I wonder, I wonder if that's the same Xenophon, and sure enough it is. He wrote on many different things. But anyway, his accounts, Herodotus' accounts and Daniel's accounts line up very well. Uh, and there again, the Bible is true, and when history disagrees with the Bible, well, they got it wrong. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so, uh, 
Let's, uh, let's read uh, Daniel 5, 1 through 4. Could I get a volunteer? Melody, please. Belshazzar, the king, made a great feast to a thousand of his lords and drank wine before the thousand. Belshazzar, while, whilst he tasted the wine, commanded to bring the golden and silver vessels which his father, Nebuchadnezzar, had taken out of the temple which was in Jerusalem, that the king and his princes, his wives and his concubines might drink therein. Then they brought the golden vessels that were taken out of the temple of the house of God, which was at Jerusalem, and the king and his princes, his wives and his concubines drank in them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and of silver, of brass, of iron, of wood, and of stone. Okay, thank you, Melody. Uh, Notice here uh, that all of the vessels that were stolen from the temple are still in Jerusalem, or still in Babylon. So Nebuchadnezzar had this great experience where he supposedly had this great awakening, but he didn't return any of God's vessels and Daniel is still a slave so um, you know I, there's there's a few things about Nebuchadnezzar's final words that I he, he uh, gave a lot of good lip service to God but it doesn't seem like he repented and it doesn't and he certainly didn't restore what he had stolen from God so they're still there and uh who was Belshazzar? That's the question. Remember the first one here I said the king who wasn't a king? Well, the historian said Daniel got it wrong. There never was a king Belshazzar. And they're right. There never was officially a king Belshazzar. Uh, look at Jeremiah 27, 4 through 7. Would somebody look that up and read it for us? 27, 4 through 7, Jeremiah. Doug, thank you. Okay. 4 through 7? Yes, please. And command, them, and command them to say to their masters, uh, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Thus you shall say to your masters, I have made the earth, the man and the beast that are on the ground, by my great power and my outstretched arm, and have given it to whom it seemed proper to me. And now I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, of my servant and the beasts of the field, I have also given him to serve him. So all nations shall serve him and his son and his son's son until the time of his land comes, and then many nations and great kings shall make him serve them. Okay, thank you, Doug. I probably should have did a little background on that first. Uh, This is a prophecy of Jeremiah. It's just before Jehoiakim. It's still in the time of, or Zedekiah, the last king. It's just prior to him. And he's telling, he told Jeremiah, this is the one where he told Jeremiah, put on a yoke and then send this message throughout the nations. He sends it to Tyre, to Edom, it's for Israel. It's for all the nations that Belshazzar or that Nebuchadnezzar has or is trying to uh, subjugate. And he's telling them, don't resist. 
because this is my doing. And how does he, what does he, how does he refer to, Nebuchad, or to Nebuchadnezzar here? As the leader of all of it. Okay, the, but what does he call servant. him? Yes, servant. My servant, Nebuchadnezzar. Remember Nebuchadnezzar standing on the, on, the, on the roof of his palace saying, look at the mighty Babylon that I have made for my majesty, by my power and for my majesty. And God is saying, no, no. You're my servant. You did this because I enabled you to do that. And notice here too, he will serve him and his son and his grandson. So who was Belshazzar? Well, him in this in this verse equals Nebuchadnezzar, his son, evil Merodach, and then his grandson, Nabonidus. Now there's two names missing in here because they were not legitimate kings. Uh, and then Belshazzar is the son of Nabonidus. Uh, for years it was refuted that Belshazzar was the king, or that Belshazzar, there even was a Belshazzar, but then documents have shown up, tablets and stuff with his name. Uh, the reason there's no official record of him is because as a regent, he was not entitled to put his name on anything. So any building projects that he did had to have his father's name because his father was the king. Where was his father? He was out trying to clean up the mess that these other guys had made. Uh, we have, uh, read up there, you see uh, Nebuchadnezzar to 562, and then there's uh, his son, Evil Merodach, then Nergalshazzar, people shouldn't be able to name kids like that, should they? <laughs> Nergalshazzar, uh, he was the king for three years. He was the one who had his brother-in-law killed so he could take the throne. And then uh, he died and he left the kingdom to his, from what the records I read, it was an infant. Then there was another uprising and uh, this was done by the descendants of Nebuchadnezzar and others who were not happy with the present, uh, present administration, and they murdered the child king and placed Nabonidus in. Go ahead, Doug. Um, so I think what you're trying to say is your life expectancy as a king is, is somewhat short sometimes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, they don't die. Very few of them have died. Most of them have been killed yeah. by somebody, you that's, know, taking it over. That's probably why they didn't count their first year as a king, because they, they may not make it through. But, yeah. but it's at any rate, uh, yeah, and then uh, Nabonidus took over, and there again, like I said, he's trying to clean up the mess that uh, Nergalshazzar had, uh, had created. Uh, the, uh, the trade routes and the oasises had been captured by rebels, and he's out trying to reestablish the kingdom, leaves Belshazzar in place in, uh, in, in Babylon to act in his stead as the king. So he's a king. He's really not the king. He's, a, he's a re what we call a regent, I guess. Uh, would somebody read Exodus 25, 29? This is God giving instruction to Moses and telling him how to furnish the temple. I just want us to be clear about these vessels. Anybody that's got it, please. Go ahead, Joshua. Oh, and you shall make its plates and dishes for incense and its flagons and bowls with, with which to pour or drink offerings 
And you shall make them of pure gold. Okay, pure gold. So here's God giving instruction to Moses about these vessels. So these vessels are not just any old vessel. They didn't buy them online, you know, from uh, from Temples R Us supply store. They had they had craftsmen build these, and they're built for a specific purpose. And what was that purpose? They're in the temple. They're to be used for the worship of the one true God, the true and the living God. And so when Belshazzar takes these and uses them for his purposes, and what's he using them for? Well, one is for drunken revelry, but what do they do with these vessels? Outside of drinking wine out of them, they're, they're toasting, they're worshiping their false gods. So they're using God's uh, sacred vessels that are set apart for him. They were designed by him. They were instructed by him to build them, and they've taken them now. Uh, first of all, they took them out of the temple. Why? We talked about this. They take. Why did they? Why did they pillage the temples of the gods of the kingdom they they to they sacked? To show that their God is bigger. Our God's better than your God. That's why I say Nebuchadnezzar never returned these. So he must still think that God is just another God among gods because he didn't return his vessels. And he lived for probably another five or six years after that seven-year period where he went insane and came back again. So he had plenty of time to return this. Uh, And then Jeremiah, we won't read Jeremiah 52, but this is Jeremiah just telling telling the... uh, that they took all of this stuff when they looted it. They took everything. All the gold and all the pure silver. They stole it. And they used it now to, to toast, you know, to drink in a drunken reverie to their, uh, to their God. This is a Rembrandt. Uh, I think it was in the 1800s or 1600s. Let's see, I can look. 1635 when Rembrandt painted this. Uh, Belshazzar. Uh, Mike, you were asking what language it was he wrote in. There you go, right there. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. according, to, according to Rembrandt. Uh, okay, Daniel 5, 5 through 9. Would somebody read that, please? In the same hour came forth fingers of a man's hand and wrote over against the candlestick upon the plaster of the walls of the king's palace. And the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. Then the king's countenance was changed, and his thoughts troubled him, so that he joined, so that his joints and his loins were loosened, and his knees smoked one against the other. The king cried aloud to bring in the astrologers and the Chaldeans mm-hmm. and the soothsayers. And the king spake and said to the wise men of Babylon, whoever shall read this writing and sue me the interpretation thereof 
shall be clothed with scarlet and have a chain of gold about his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then came in all the king's wise men, but they could not read the writing, nor make known to the king the interpretation thereof. Then was King Balthazar greatly troubled, and his countenance was changed in him, and his lord were okay, thank you. Thank you. So Mike asked before before a class, he says, what language was written on the wall? We're not told, but you're right. The, the astrologers couldn't even read it. So maybe it was written in Hebrew. They were Chaldean. I don't I don't know. It's a good it really doesn't doesn't change doesn't the matter. doesn't change the lesson here, but it's it's an interesting point. I like to ask questions like that too and just Rolling around in your head. But anyway, so uh, fingers of a man's hand appear. <laughs> and uh, I like that last word. And the lords were astonished. Have you ever been astonished? See something you just can't believe happened? Imagine this. They're probably thinking, what was in that wine? But something really weird happened here. And... Uh, so what did, what did the king see? He saw hand. a hand writing on the wall. And uh, to this day, have you ever heard somebody say, well, the writing's on the wall? Yeah. yeah it, it's, it's amazing how many little things out of the Bible have made it into, into our language. People don't even know where it comes from. The writing's on the wall. There it is. Plain and easy for you to see. It wasn't plain and easy for these guys to see, though. I don't think... Uh, how was the king affected? Astonished. His, <laughs> his knees were knocking together. I don't know if I've ever been that scared. I've been scared, but uh, I don't know if I've ever been so scared that my knees were knocking together. But, but this one really got his attention. What would we feel like if on one of these walls all of a sudden it happened? A hand appeared and started writing on the wall. What would we, I mean, I don't know about you, but I would be a little concerned. I think a, a revival would break out, maybe. <laughs> yeah. Who did he call for? Soothsayers. All his, all his uh, the Chaldeans. Yeah. Um, all the sorcerers and anybody that was his counsel of anything, you know, they would, I guess... Assuming in those days they were kind of superstitious. Yeah. And they, they would call on people to predict before battles and give them information. They was call on them. Yeah. It, and it's interesting. Isn't this the same formula as chapter 2? Mm-hmm. And then Daniel comes last and interprets chapter 4. Chaldeans, the sorcerers, the wizards, and then Daniel comes. He's kind of like the uh, the guy with the white hat, the right, the, you know, the guy that comes riding in on the white horse with the white hat, and he's got the answer. But uh, these other guys are standing there, dumbfounded. They don't know what to do about it. And uh, how'd that work out for them? Well, same old, you know, same old results. No, no answer. Uh, then King Belshazzar was greatly troubled. 
His countenance was changed and his lords were astonished. Now think about this too. He had a thousand of his lords. He had his wives, his concubines. I would imagine that the lords probably had their wives and concubines. And uh, so this is a pretty good-sized party. It was, it was more than a 1,000 people. You could probably be three times that if you count the, all the guests that were there as well. And uh, uh, then 5, 10 through 12. Somebody, please. Go ahead, uh, Malachi. The queen entered the banquet hall because of the words of the king and his nobles. Spoke and said, O king, live forever. Do not let your thoughts alarm you or your face be pale. There is a man in your kingdom, in whom is the spirit of the holy gods, and in the days of your father, illumination, insight, and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And Nebuchadnezzar, your father, uh, your father the king, appointed him chief of the magicians, conjurers, chaldeans, and diviners. This was because an extraordinary spirit, knowledge and insight, interpretation of dream, dreams, explanation of enigmas, and solving of difficult problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king has named Belteshazzar. Let Daniel now be summoned, and he will declare the interpretation. Okay. So, uh, the queen, when you read this, does it appear that the queen was not at the ball? That's, what it, that's the way I'm reading this. She wasn't there. So she's probably not uh, one of Belshazzar's wives. She's probably what they would refer to as the queen mother. And uh, most likely she was the, the uh, mother, she was either the wife of uh, Nebuchadnezzar or evil Merodash. One of the two. Uh, now also notice... Belshazzar apparently has not heard of this Daniel guy. If he has, he's forgotten about him. He doesn't know about him. So Daniel, uh, during this transition of powers, probably lost his lost his job. What was his job under Nebuchadnezzar? He was second in the kingdom. He was the second second highest in the kingdom, and he was also over all of the. Enchanters, magicians, Chaldeans, and soothsayers, and and so on and so forth. So he he went now from uh, being the second in the command to somebody that the king doesn't even know about, or like I said, is forgotten about. And the queen mother uh, remembers him. Let me see if I've got it up here. Uh, what is what? Is, how does she refer to him as? But what name? By what name does she use? Daniel. Daniel. Yeah. Now that's interesting too, because I think in chapter four, didn't Nebuchadnezzar also call him Daniel, Belshazzar? So he started out as Belshazzar in the kingdom, and he's he's distinguished himself, and this queen knows his his Jewish name, and uses it also known as Belshazzar. So Belshazzar's coming in second now. So Daniel is pretty pretty well respected by her, perhaps, or at least well known by her. And uh, here's a, I forget who painted this one, but anyway, this is a painting. Uh, Daniel, he's uh, in the middle here, and he's explaining 
this interpretation to the king. And what I found interesting here is if you look in the background, you see the two towers, kind of shadow. One on the left is a shadow of uh, uh, the Tower of Babel. And the one on the right is the tower that uh, Nebuchadnezzar made. This is just an artist's sketch of it. But most uh, archaeologists and historians believe that Babylon was built on the ruins of the Tower of Babel. So, like I said, remember, that it, in fact, when, when you read this in the original language, the word is Babel, not Babylon. It doesn't become Babylon until the Greek Septuagint, which Babylon is a Greek word. <coughs> okay, 13 through 16, someone please. Joshua. Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, the one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father bought from Judah. I have heard that you have the spirit of the gods is in you, and that the light under the light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation. But they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretation to solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed in purple and a gold chain around your neck and be the third ruler in the kingdom. Okay, thank you. So what name does Belshazzar use for Daniel? He uses Daniel again. He doesn't even mention the, the fact that you used to be called Belshazzar by my father. And another point I should bring up too is, notice the queen said, your father, Nebuchadnezzar, your father, the king. So she's really emphasizing this to him. And uh, was Belshazzar, Nebun, or Bel, <coughs> was, was uh, Nebuchadnezzar actually Belshazzar's father? No. No. But that's not, that's not a problem with the book of Daniel, is it? Because that was a way of referring to an ancestor. In fact, when you read, uh, it still was still used even in the Greek days when you start with, uh, with Matthew. And Matthew, I believe, was written in Aramaic. Many believe, wasn't it? I believe there were parts of it. That parts of it were written in Aramaic. Well, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 starts out with Jesus, son of David, son of Abraham. Skipping many generations here. So it wasn't unusual to call someone many generations past your father. Uh, like my fourth great-grandfather could be referred to as my father, but we don't do that. We say fourth great-grandfather. Uh, what awards does he offer him? A scarlet robe and a gold chain, which both signify power. Okay. That he is of a high position. Okay. And royalty. Royalty. Yeah. What was what? What words did he use for that? You will third. be third. third in the kingdom. Isn't that interesting? Now, if, if in Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom, he was second. He was second, and here he's third. Belshazzar could not offer him second because he had second. His father was first. Belshazzar was second. Daniel would be third highest. Mm -hmm unless Belshazzar wanted to step down. That's the only way he could make Daniel number three, or number two. Uh, five, seventeen through 21. 
Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself, and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king, and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the Most High God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. Twenty-one. Um, but when his heart was lifted up, and his spirit was hardened, so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne, and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. Okay, thank you, Doug. So, uh, here again, God is reiterating the fact that, or Daniel is reiterating the fact that God put Nebuchadnezzar in that position. And remember the, uh, the prophecy in Daniel. Uh, God goes on to, to even say, it'll be your son and your grandson. So where did these other two usurpers come from? I believe that was Satan attacking God's prophecy, trying to thwart his prophecy from coming true. He tried to put his man in place. Nebuchadnezzar is my servant, God said. And his son and his son will be my servants. So Satan says, no, we're going to put a stop to this. We're going to try to end that. He tries to put in his guy uh, and it didn't work out. It was turned back to God. So God's plans always uh, come to fruition. Uh, So what does Daniel think of the king's rewards? Keep them, yeah. 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 You know, give them to another. I'm sorry? Give them to to somebody else, yeah. Uh, Remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when they uh, when they were confronted by the king and they said uh, we don't we don't need to give your our account of this we don't need to uh, and I said it's not like them to be uh, kind of that that rude like that Daniel's not mincing words now he's he's uh, he's probably <laughs> he's probably in his eighties maybe. And uh, he's lost his patience with these guys. So I know I'm not as patient as I was, and I never was patient. My wife says, but uh, could it be also that's part of it when you're older, you kind of dumb playing games. Yeah, I'm I'm Um, joking. Done with the politically correct stuff. Anyway. He was brought there to interpret. He probably already knew what it was going to be. Why would you want to be the king when you knew what was going to happen? That's a good point. Uh, and in the next section, we'll get into that a little more. But uh, yeah. And uh, Daniel gives Belshazzar and all his drunken buddies a history lesson. Uh, they've forgotten. They've forgotten Daniel. But Daniel says, "And you know this." You know, he, he gives them the, the, the background and he says, and you already knew this. 
And then 22 through 24. Um, and you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have brought life to them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath, and whose are all your ways you have not honored. Then from his presence the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed. Okay. Thank you. So he admonishes the king, uh, and he he says, you knew this. And, he, and then he goes back and he says, and he explains to them. He, he really does explain to them what, what you did. Why was it wrong? He probably didn't understand it. He thought he's, you know, we're drinking wine, we're toasting our gods, and then this weird stuff happens. And Daniel explains it to him that this is because you've taken God's vessels and worship your pagan gods, and God will not be mocked. God demands pure worship. Pure and perfect worship. Uh, and this is the message. Well, let me back up here a little bit to uh, 20... 20... Well, I lost my thought there. So he admonishes the king. Uh, now here's here's the here's the words, and this is the inscription that was written. Many many tekel you parson. Uh, this is the interpretation of each word. Got it. Here it's a little easier. God has numbered your kingdoms and finished it. Go ahead. I wanted to say back up, um, before this, he admonished the king. That is like poking a badger with a stick. Oh yeah. You, I mean, he could have, the king to admonish a king in front of people would be, I would say, instant death. You, you're admonishing me, mm -hmm. you know. But he did know that he needed to interpret the writing. And Daniel knew he had the interpretation. Yes. So he wasn't. Daniel doesn't have any fear. Yeah. Yeah. Got it. He does not fear, well, in the Bible it says he didn't fear men. Yeah. Uh, Y'all heard that song, In Christ Alone? The, the last verse, uh, no guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. Yeah, that, that was the power Daniel had, no fear in death. Not afraid to speak his mind. So he says, your kingdom is finished. Uh, you've been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Now this is this is directed at Belshazzar. You have been weighed and found wanting. He's not just directing this at Babylon. He's directing this straight at at Nebuchadnezzar, at Belshazzar. Uh, your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and Persians. And this is the question, uh, Mikehead. How does Daniel know? that the Medes and the Persians. How does he know that? 
when he gave the interpretation of the, uh, the statue to Nebuchadnezzar, he said, a kingdom will come after you. And another one after that. He doesn't name them. Well, if you remember the very first lesson, I said this book is not written in chronological order. Uh, the first section, one through six, is a narrative regarding uh, Daniel's experience as a captive in Babylon all the way through Darius, which is our next chapter. And then it makes a transition. It goes into prophecies or visions given to Daniel. And if you read Daniel chapter 7, it begins with the words, in the first year of Belshazzar, he's given a vision. This is the fourth year of Belshazzar. If you go to chapter 8, and we will go to chapter 8, it says, in the third year of King Belshazzar, I received this vision. And in this vision, he sees uh, a, a goat with two horns and a ram with one horn that becomes four horns. And he's troubled. He asks the angel, what is this? And the angel says, the goat with the two horns is the Medes and the Persians. So Daniel's already seen that. So this is, Daniel's seen this and he knows what's coming. Also, according to uh, Herodotus and Xenophon, the Medes and the Persians had the city under siege at this time. They were already surrounded the city, and they knew they were out there. But they were sitting in there just kind of thumbing their noses at them because you can't get in here. The only way in is through this 85-thick wall, 85-foot-thick wall, and then you got another one once you get inside that. Oh, you want to dig underneath it? Well, 35 feet down, and uh, we'll rain down tar and oil on you as you're digging. There was no way in. But the picture showed also a moat. Uh-huh. So... So digging under a moat would be a little bit dangerous? It probably would cave in, yeah, that's true. I hadn't thought of that. Yeah, the moat, moat's the first one, the first wall and then the second wall. That's pretty impenetrable. Yeah. I mean, it's, that's a lot of barriers. Yeah. Uh, according to the historians, this was a, uh, a national feast, an annual national feast feast that was going on here. It wasn't just a party Belshazzar threw on, on a whim. It was planned. Cyrus knew it was coming and he's waiting outside and uh, they're saying hang out, you know, you got about 20 years Can you? we can last 20 years, can you? And uh, so he waits for this feast and the historians tell us that he rerouted the Euphrates River. He had it all set up to, to where when they, when they uh, started this drunken party they rerouted the Euphrates. It washed out into a low area and into that canal that you saw in the picture that goes around the city. And uh, they walked in in knee-deep water and uh, took the city. And anybody that did see them, they just they. Uh, th this was from the account of the Persians. They said, uh, "Yeah, we just pretended like we were part of the party, yelling and screaming and and you know just raising cane and making noise because everybody else was." And anybody that didn't catch on, they killed them. And uh, they finally made it to the palace, and that's where they, they got Nebuchadnezzar, and they, they killed everybody. According, according to one of the two, Herodotus or Xenophon, I don't remember which, they killed everybody at the party, including Belshazzar. So that, that's how Daniel knew it was the Medes and the Persians, probably first of all by the prophecy 
when he saw him showing up on, around the walls, because in the prophecy he's not told when, but now he's he sees it. They're outside the wall, and uh, that's an interesting point on prophecy as well. Pastors uh, teaching through Revelation. There's a lot of prophecy in there. Go ahead, Tim. Why didn't they kill Daniel? I don't know. God protected him, I guess. Uh, the lions don't kill him in the next chapter, and they've tried to kill him before. He's, he, yeah, I don't know. I really don't know. That's a question I've kind of asked, too. I never, never, any, anybody got any thoughts? Yeah, that's what I was thinking. But the thought that hit me was when he rejected, I don't want to be third in charge. I don't want the purple robe and the jewelry. But he's standing there wearing it. Because yeah. they put it on him. But he didn't want it. I know. Yeah. So uh, somehow I'm wondering if he discarded it during the attack <laughs> and left and didn't want to be part of the nobles because they most likely killed anybody that was nobility. Well, that's that true. And, uh, and Malachi, I'll get to you in a second, okay? Uh, that's true. Well, I guess we haven't gotten to that part yet. But... It says that very night. It doesn't say that very instant. Yes. So, so yeah. He discarded and left. He, he probably did. He probably didn't hang around after he gave the interpretation. And I wish, it wouldn't have been nice to have been a, a fly on the wall and see how that party turned out after the interpretation. How they did. If they, uh, should I tell this story? I will. And, and, <laughs> and Daniel, would, if he took off the purple and the jewelry and all that, would become a normal person, and the Medes and Persians probably wouldn't know about him. And so there was no reason to kill him. Yeah. But if they had known that he had interpreted the dream, I'm wondering if they wouldn't have killed him. Yeah. We, we never will never know. No. But uh, I was thinking about the mood in the room after the party, and I remember many, many years ago in a life before this one, uh, used to hang out in this bar and there was a, a, a musical group that would play and they would always close with a hymn. And yeah. And uh, I can't remember what the hymn was but I really liked it and I asked them if they would play it. And he says, no, we can't play it till closing. And I said, why? He says, because once we play, play that, people stop drinking and the, and the bar owners get mad at us. I think the power well, yeah. of prayer. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. And uh, so, but at closing time, they want everybody to quit drinking and leave anyway, so that was a good way. So da- Daniel wasn't in the court. I'm sorry? Daniel wasn't in the court. He wasn't in the court? No, so, you know, most situations like this, you had an inner court and the outer court, right? So he would be demoted at some point from the inner circle to where he's probably still receiving food from the king's table, but he's not sitting inside of the inner sanctum. He's kind of on the outside of the periphery. He's probably, I don't know, he's probably retired from public life and is teaching kids or something, or he's doing something whereby he's, he's exiled out of the current event. And so that's why when they call the Chaldeans, they don't yeah. call Daniel, because Daniel's not there. And so when Daniel left, he would have gone back to the outer court, but at the same time is, I have no doubt that Chaldea, the uh, Medes and the Persians would have known about Daniel because he was running the country for a long period of time. He, he would have been like a, a former president. Everyone knows who he is. 
and you know, and, and they probably would have respected the guy because he had he had that wisdom. Mm -hmm. And so killing him is not necessarily going to do you any favors. They know he's not there by choice. Yeah. They know he was there. They probably yeah. You're you're right. They probably knew of him because he was the second highest in the kingdom under Nebuchadnezzar. So they knew of him right. and probably respected him. That's a good point. Yeah. Even though he'd been demoted now, and he was he was just an old retired guy like me. So. <laughs> Uh, 5.29, I'm going to read this because we're running short on time. Uh, then Belshazzar gave the command and they clothed Daniel with purple and put a chain of gold around his neck. And I've often thought, man, I wouldn't want to be wearing that when these guys come in. Uh, and, and made a pro proclamation proclaiming that he should be the third ruler of the kingdom. That's kind of like throwing you the keys to a Ferrari right after you total it out, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, that night, Belshazzar, king of the Chaldeans, was slain, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Um, Go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry, Malachi. I didn't get back to you. I was just going to say what things you guys were saying. Daniel was just so well known that they wanted him for prophecy interpretation and stuff like that. Yeah, they probably, yeah, they probably figured he could be useful to them as well. Good point. Because they had seen the, the uh, decline in the, in the kingdom, and they probably saw his being demoted as just part of that decline. Yeah, good point. Now. Okay. So, uh, Daniel is not out of the weeds yet, because he mentions a man named Darius the Mede, and history says there never was a Darius the Mede. There was a, a later Darius, but there was no Darius the Mede. And we'll learn more about that when we get to the next chapter, which we're going to start out with Darius the Mede and Daniel in the lion's den. So, uh, well, let's just, uh, Daniel 5, 1 through 4. Uh, this is, I didn't, oh, there we go. Psalm 50, verses 9 through 12. God's speaking, and he says, I have no need of a bull from your stall or goats from your pens, for every animal in the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird in the mountains and the creatures of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all that is in it. God does not need us to go do physical battle for him. Paul said we don't wage against flesh and blood, we wage against war against principalities and powers of darkness. Uh, God just proved right here. He doesn't need us to go out and physically defend him. Our defense should be prayer, uh, gentleness, kindness. I know it's hard. Uh, I like to punch him in the nose sometimes, but that does not win friends and influence people. Uh, but God has everything. Uh, we're here for his glorification, not vice versa. Any other thoughts and comments? Let's close with prayer. Thank you, dear Heavenly Father, for giving us your word, the Bible. Uh, we know it's true, Lord, and uh, we know that the critics are going to attack it. And uh, we'll give them answers when we can, but even if we can't, we're still going to believe your word. And uh, help us, Lord, to, uh, to be courageous, to speak when we should speak and not when we're not to be spoken, not to speak. 
help us to follow you and obey you and uh, lead us in your way. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.